Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. So here we are, the final day of uh, 2017. Wrapping it up. The year is almost, almost done with. I was just looking at some numbers here, and uh, they are scary. Now, they go back a few years, and maybe, uh, maybe 10 years, but I suspect they're not all that different today than they were at the time that this particular study was done or a, a survey was done of high school students by the Josephson Institute in the United States. The Josephson Institute's 2008 report card on the ethics of American youth, the report on the attitudes and conduct of 29,760 high school students, reveals entrenched habits of dishonesty in today's young people. Check this out, stealing. In bad news for business, more than one in three boys, 35%, and one-fourth of the girls, 26%, a total of 30% overall, admitted stealing from a store within the past year. Lying. More than two in five, 42%, said they sometimes lie to save money. Again, the male-female difference was significant, 49% of the males, 36% of the females. Cheating in school continues to be rampant, and it's getting worse. A substantial majority, 64%, cheated on a test during the past year. 38% did so two or more times. And as bad as these numbers are, it appears they understate the level of dishonesty exhibited by America's youth. I've got some stuff on Canada, too, I'll share with you shortly. More than one in four confessed they lied on at least one or two questions on the survey. And despite these high levels of dishonesty... These same kids have a high self-image when it comes to ethics. A whopping 93% said they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character, and 77% said that when it comes to doing what is right, I'm better than most people I know. I don't know why I'm laughing. Roy Green Show, Chorus Radio Network. Later on on the show, we'll have our... I'm really looking forward to this. Three members of the Conservative Party of Canada will be our guests. Two members of Parliament... One senator, Michelle Rempel, who's the MP for Calgary Nose Hill, Candace Bergen, the MP for Portage Liscar, and uh, Senator Denise Battish from Saskatchewan. We'll go out of 2017, 2000, into 2018 with these very strong-willed and uh, definitely leaders in this country of ours. Dr. Arthur Kaplan joins me. He's the head of Methical Ethics at the New York University School of Medicine. He joins us from the Pointer Journalism Ethics Summit, and he wrote an op-ed, The Media Need to Do More to Elevate a National Conversation About Ethics. Dr. Kaplan, it's good to talk to you. We've been talking about various issues over the last 10 years, you and I, and what I'm finding out, what I'm hearing is staggering, and these numbers, I went back 10 years, these numbers from the Josephson Institute for High School Kids are really worrisome because they are now the people who are 
in the workforce? You've got a situation where I think high school kids look up for role models and they don't find them. In the States, they may find a president who got elected as a tough businessman, which could also be interpreted as not much ethics, willing to renege on contracts, sort of leave the little guy in the lurch, lie. And many people thought, well, that's what success is all about. And then we have a parade of people today who are uh, fallen heroes. So I know those that date is old, but I do worry that we are not uh, doing the kinds of things a culture needs to do in the U.S. or Canada to inculcate better ethics. We're just sort of keeping score on the failures, you know, the parade of people who have uh, been busted for harassment or other sins, and we don't do much more than sort of list them and gawk at them. And then we've got political leaders who sort of make it as doing what it takes, quote-unquote. Well, I'm just looking at the opening line from the piece that you wrote. Presidents, Olympians, congressional leaders, judges, university professors, religious leaders, media stars, military leaders, police, professional and amateur sports celebrities, business titans, and a host of others now occupy the burgeoning ranks of debunked heroes. I now expect to open a newspaper or website or turn on my TV and find a daily moral disappointment staring back at me with his lawyer in the background, apology in hand. Have ethics really taken a kick in the pants, or does it just appear that way because of the concentration on the issue? No, I think they've taken a kick in the pants. I think there's been sliding away from taking ethics seriously. Some people don't want it taught or mentioned or discussed in the public schools at all. Some people think it's only to be talked about at religious institutions, churches and mosques and synagogues and so on. I think a lot of folks basically have given up. And the culture, if you watch our media on both sides of the border, tends to reward material success as the right thing to do. Rich, famous, celebrities, bigger houses, uh, better cars. How you got there, eh, we don't care so much. The measuring stick is starting to become what you got, not how did you get it. So this is a permanent... I mean, are we at the point where it has the chance to become a cornerstone of our society going forward. In other words, I don't really care about ethics. If I get caught, I'll just I'll either apologize or I'll just you know, shrug and walk away from it. Uh, are we at that stage? I worry we are. I think that uh, until we get more dialogue going in our houses, at our schools, at our civic organizations, and nationally in the media that sort of says, look, uh, we don't just want to report on bad behavior, and we don't just want to give high marks to those who seem to have the largest cars and the biggest swimming pools, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, and I think it's a problem because I do believe you can't really have a free market. You can't run capitalism without an undergirding of ethics. That is, you need trust. You have to honor promises. Even the founder of sort of free market society, Adam Smith, when he wrote a book called Wealth of Nations, which inspired a slew of capitalists after him, um, he wrote a book before that in the 18th century called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And what he said was, you can't have a free market without ethics. You've got to have an ethics foundation. If you don't, 
the whole thing ultimately falls apart. And I worry we're headed that way. Is uh, the use of the word ethics, is it overused and perhaps not as well understood, the word itself as it should be? Should we be saying, if you know it's wrong, it's wrong. If you know it's right, it's right. If you're not sure, it's probably wrong, too. (laughs) Well, there's certainly room for intuition. But remember, a lot of people once thought, if that person's a different skin color, they don't belong in the pool with me. Uh, I don't think that person's gender would let them vote. I mean, we have made some moral progress. I don't want to deny that. We have more civil rights, even in my area of medical ethics. We now expect people to get informed consent before they do things to you. The doctor should get your permission, get your agreement. So it's not that we haven't made progress, but I think what's happened is we're starting to get relativistic. That's what you were just doing, Roy. You were saying, look, it's really in the eye of the beholder, and uh, that's all we got. I don't think that's true. I think we got some pretty time-tested principles. Treat others like you'd want to be treated is a good one. Um, that we ought to be bringing forward and saying, look, in business life, military life, you can't just do what you want to the enemy, quote unquote. We treat their injured. We uh, don't beat them up and torture them to extract information. I think that behavior on the part of America was a disaster morally. I agree with John McCain and others about that. You don't torture. You give up the moral high ground. And in sports, it does matter uh, what you do to win. The, uh, the Russians, doping, undercuts the Olympics uh, completely. You know, we can't have competition without ethics. We can't have athletics that anybody's going to pay serious attention to if cheating is everywhere. Yeah, well, cheating's as close as the, uh, the next person with a vial of mm-hmm. performance-enhancing substances in sports, then it's up to the individual to make the decision whether or not to take it. Well, Sometimes, right? So, say, I do think it's up to the individual, but if your coach says take it, if your sponsor says we're not going to back you unless you win, yeah, yeah. if people wind up saying the only thing that I'm paying attention to is who came in first, yeah. not how well you competed, then I think you're encouraging taking that vial. Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. If the difference is a $30 million a year contract, if you take it, and you build yourself up enough that your performance levels are going to be such that you'll be breaking records, or if you don't take it, uh, you're just going to be an average player and you'll be making, I know mm-hmm. it sounds terrible, but a million bucks a year, a lot of people are going to opt for the $30 million. And I remember talking to uh, Ben Johnson's coach. Mm-hmm. And Ben Johnson's coach said to me, Ben could beat everybody if everybody ran clean, but he could not beat them if they ran dirty. So... We did what they did. And I think there are those who would just say, give it up. Let them use whatever they want. Stop trying to police it. But you can't do it because at some point they start killing themselves in order to get an advantage. They take things that damage their liver. They do things that are going to cause early death because the drugs are too powerful. So to me, we've got to say to coaches and sports reporters, and even the fans, look, um, we're going to try and police it as best we can. We can't control every bit of cheating. But if a person cheats, they're going to they're going to be held in contempt. We're going to try and pull the money back from them. We're going to yank back the rewards. I'm not even impressed that, given the level 
that the Russians exhibited of cheating in the Winter Olympics that they're still hanging around in this upcoming Olympics under anybody's flag. Yeah, no, I understand, and I agree. Do you have a couple of minutes more? I do. All right, let me take a quick break, and we'll come back and speak some more with Dr. Arthur Kaplan, because we've talked about celebrities and politicians and people who are at the top of the food chain, as it were, who have been caught ethically compromised. Some of them continue with their careers. Others disappear for a while, and then they come back either in a different career or they're reborn in their previous career. They make all sorts of promises not to do it again. But what about how it affects, ethical behavior affects our daily lives? You take your car in for service, and you're told your vehicle requires something that it doesn't require. And you pay for it because you trust the person who's working on your car to tell you the truth. And the person who's working on the car, and I'm not just, pick, I'm not just, I'm not picking on any one group. It's just an example. Uh, and the person who is working on your car had the intent of telling you from the very beginning that you needed to have something replaced that was working perfectly fine, because that person was intent to make some extra money. So that's where the ethics breakdown is. Just one example, a small example of our, of our daily lives. And I'm sure that everybody listening to this program feels have been screwed one way or another by someone at some time, who behaved unethically. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's something from uh, July 6, 2010. Spurred on by new technology, cheating in Canadian high schools and post-secondary institutions is growing and evolving to the point that students and teachers differ over what qualifies as cheating, according to the Canadian Council on Learning. Nearly three-quarters, 73% of first-year students across Canada, admitted to committing one or more serious acts of academic dishonesty on written work while in high school, including cheating on essays or assignments, and nearly 60% admitted to serious acts of cheating on tests in high school, according to a survey of 20,000 students at 11 post-secondary education institutions. And that is in this country. Dr. Arthur Kaplan is my guest, head of medical ethics at New York University School of Medicine. And uh, one of his books, and it's my favorite, Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. Dr. Kaplan, one stat after another with big numbers of people who openly admit to the fact that they cheat. So there is some there's ethical breakdown there. And then what I found particularly interesting was in the Josephson study, they got to... Uh, Despite these levels of dishonesty, and we went through all the, the high levels of people cheating, the same kids have a high self-image when it comes to ethics. A whopping 93% said they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character, and 77% so that, quote, when it comes to doing what is right, I'm better than most people I know. <laughs> so what are your students saying? My students these days are saying, I don't know where to turn. It looks like everybody who's successful has serious flaws, whether it's a Bill Cosby that they grew up watching as some kind of moral exemplar, or all these Hollywood types being perp-walked away for harassment, or a Charlie Rose who their parents told them, no, that's the kind of person you want to grow up to be. On and on it goes. So there, I don't know that they'd tell me they had great morals. I think what they'd say is morals are for suckers, or I just don't know why I should do it because so many people don't, and they seem to do well. Uh, I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of people whose feeling is that I'm entitled, and our saying in this country is I'm entitled to my entitlements, quoting a former cabinet minister, 
And uh, But there's also a lot of people who say I have my rights and my right is to go after whatever I want. And if I do something that's uh, unethical or immoral, well, that's your point of view. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree. I think, again, you're certainly entitled to pursue self-interest. Right. But you got to be thinking about, in the long run, if you just tramp all over people, if you crush them, if you do things that destroy them, it makes for good TV dramas and stuff and entertainment in a way. The jerk rises to the top. But the system is premised on the idea that you're not going to do that, that you strive as hard as you can to get ahead, you pursue your self-interest, sure, but you don't do it by duping or worse harming uh, others Mm -hmm. and when you get to the top the thing to do is to remember that you owe uh, your society your city your group something you didn't really just make it up there on your own i'm kind of amused to see people tell me well i did it all myself um no you didn't sent you to school somebody allowed you to have you know a warm home when you were uh, a kid um so you got to get back. you right. got to pay it back a little bit. Not everything, but something. some of it. Yeah, Dr. Kaplan, I've got to run. I appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. And a Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thanks. Dr. Arthur Kaplan on the Roy Green Show on the Cordless Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And that is uh, audio from Iran, where the people of the country are standing up against the government and uh, they're challenging the government as maybe, I don't know whether it's the same kind of challenge as happened in 2009 with the uh, Green Movement or whether it's somewhat different in 2018. It did come very quickly. There wasn't a lot of forewarning, at least I wasn't aware, but now uh, I, mean, I look at this situation in Iran. I look at the people who are looking for uh, an increased sense of uh, of, of our freedom. Uh, I, I hope Western leaders and Western governments will do better than we did in 2009, even if it's just to provide moral support. Because 2009, Mr. Obama just walked away and basically told Americans, the American government, we're out. It's very disappointing, but of course you're not allowed to say anything about Barack Obama because he never made any mistakes, did he? We're going to talk about the situation in Iran in in just a few seconds. I just also want to remind you that in our next hour, Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary Nose Hill, Candace Bergen, Conservative Member of Parliament for Portage Lisker, and Senator Denise Batters from Saskatchewan are going to be joining us. We're going to close out 2018 and look ahead to 2000. No, we're not. We're closing out 2017. Well, at least I'm not a procrastinator. Uh, We're closing out 2017 and looking into 2018 with our three guests from the Conservative Party, Michelle Rempel, Candace Bergen, and Denise Batters, MP, MP, and Senator, respectively. So anti-government protests continue in Iran, with protesters chanting, Death to the Dictator, and Iran's government has issued warnings to protesters. Reports have two protesters dead. Some say gunfire was involved, others say no. And the government is significantly restricting social media access. Marina Namat joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network at 16. She was imprisoned in Tehran's notorious Evan prison 
where she was tortured and sentenced to death for speaking out against the government. She's the author of Prisoner of Tehran and After Tehran, and she is an internationally celebrated human rights activist. It's good to speak with you again, Marina. It's been a, it's been a while, and you're the very first person I thought of when, uh, when, of course, when the situation that is currently underway began to develop. Thank you for coming on the program. And what are the Iranian people looking for? What is the protest? Uh, what are the demonstrations about now? Well, thank you for having me, Roy. Uh, in Iran, we've had protests against the uh, Islamist government since uh, 1980. That is when I was involved in the protests, and that is in, in 1982 as a result I was arrested. But protests have been on and off in Iran. Some of them have been more widespread, some of them less so. Some of them have been reported on by the media in the West, some have not. But uh, I guess in 2009, that's the one, the, 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 mo- the most recent one that comes to mind, and that was reported on. So the protests are, are nothing new. The issue that I think people need to understand is that the Iranian regime has strongly established itself as um, a dictator with, with an iron fist. These people are not shy. They would put dissidents, and by dissident, I mean, you know, the, the slightest criticism of the government would, uh, would make you a dissident in Iran. They would put people in prison. They would, with no, no access to due process, they would torture, they would rape, they would threaten family members, they would put family members away. I mean, um, they're ruthless. So they have established this ruthlessness, and people in Iran know the price of protest. So, but what happens is that as history moves forward, because history never remains stagnant, when you have a dictatorship that just grabs the throat of its people and just keeps squeezing, you're going to arrive eventually at a point of no return. You can push people so far. Now, these protests that we have, seen, we have been seeing on and off, they are just these steps on this road that leads to a point of no return. And I don't think that the protests right now are at are that point uh, because the situation in Iran abroad is, uh, in my humble opinion, I might be wrong, but in my humble opinion, is not ripe enough to, you know, for it's not, the Iranian people are not at the point to say enough is enough. We are just done with you. And what prompted these recent protests is just the ridiculous inflation. I mean, every other week, prices get doubled, and the average middle-class or lower-class family is just seriously having difficulty putting food on the table, is seriously having difficulty paying their rent. So things are getting harder and harder, and as a result, corruption is rampant. I mean, you can get nothing done, you can get nothing done in Iran without bribing people. So... This is what prompted the recent protest, economy. And nothing economical can happen when it is somehow not connected to politics and mm-hmm. to the government. So this is what's been happening in Iran. Now, you talked about what happens to dissidents, and dissidents could be anybody who says anything yeah. that is negative or, or interpreted as being mm-hmm. negatively directed toward the government. 
And they did to you and they did to your family all the things that you that you talked about, mm-hmm. right? They imprisoned you. They, you, were, right. you were tortured. Yeah, you were sexually yep. assaulted. You were, yep. you were you were sentenced to death. Clearly, right. clearly, the message is: don't do this. Don't do. Don't don't oppose this because it's going to happen to you. That's right. Um, and and you were fortunate to get get away from there, and you did it. I mean, you 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 agreed to marry a a, a guard who then helped you to get out, and all you want to do is get away from there. Um, but today, and it, your, the story is amazing. It's, uh, um, the, the story of Marina is amazing. So if you haven't read Prisoner of Tehran or After Tehran, read the books. They are really, really well worth the read. So, so it's not as explosive yet your interpretation is not as explosive yet no. as it as it might become uh and so it's a staged situation so each time it gets a little a, a little more um potent uh i suppose to so, so, so a certain degree again don't forget that you're dealing with a government that would do anything mm-hmm. would go to any length to uh, destroy anybody who stands in its way. And they have established this reputation, so nobody doubts it. So the situation in Iran must arrive at a point where the vast majority of the population would say, wait a second, I'm going to die anyhow. I mean, because I I can't provide for my family, because we can't eat, Mm -hmm. because we can't live. So what they do to me, and not just to me as a dissident, but to my family, to my children, so be it. Because we are not going to survive this situation anyhow, so we might as well stand up to these people who have taken us hostage, to our own government that has taken us hostage since 1979. Enough is enough. And I, I'm, I speak to my friends who are in Iran, and they, many of my friends, they have been in prison as well, so they are dissidents. They, the thing that scares them, <laughs> funny enough, is not so much to be imprisoned again or tortured again or their families being in danger. What really scares them is what is going on in the region. Because if you look at Iran's neighbors, if you look at Afghanistan, even Pakistan, because Pakistan is a stronghold of Al-Qaeda, and if you look at Syria, if you look at Iraq, basically Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan are to various degrees in civil war. And in Iran, my friends always say, listen, we have the devil at the head of our country, but at least Iran is stable. If we destabilize Iran, we are going to become the next Syria. And are you really asking us to do that? Do you want Iran to enter civil war? Whatever we have right now, yes, in a sense, dissidents are put in prison, they are put away. Okay, the economy is definitely not doing great. But at the end of the day, we can go to the market and buy a loaf of bread. It all be very expensive, but we can go home without being blown up. So what are you asking us? And, and I think what, what we are seeing, it, most protests in Iran and many protests in other places in the Middle East, let's not forget what happened in Tunisia, 
they, they start from economic issues. But then you cannot separate economy from the government, so then they tend to become anti-government protests. Now, if the protests this year are actually going to escalate and are going to become bigger than 2009, I don't know. But the trajectory, now again, when we talk about trajectory of history, uh, it's not going to happen by tomorrow. If you look at the days of Soviet Union, for example, the Soviet Union was in power from 1917 to like, what was it, 1980. 1980. So it, it, it takes a long time. It usually takes more than a generation to get rid of a very strong, powerful dictatorship. And there is no arguing that Iran is strong and powerful. They sit on oil. So there is money, and they have support. They have the support of Russia. They have the support of China. And these are powerful allies, huge, powerful allies. So to actually destabilize Iran to the point that the regime is in danger of demise, it would take a lot. It would take the vast majority of the population, and it would take for them to say, whatever happens to us, that's fine, because we are fed up with this. And I don't see it happening right now. I don't see it happening, not internally and not externally. Again, because there's so much turmoil in the region that if Iran goes down that path, basically there will be nothing left. But Again, I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody saw the, the fall of the Soviet Union when it fell. I cannot say I know exactly when it will happen. This is just simply an educated guess. Yeah. Can you stay with us a bit longer? Sure. Okay. Let me take a quick break, and we'll come back uh, with Marina Namat. And again, uh, her books are Prisoner of Tehran and After Tehran. She was sentenced to death at 16 years of age in Evan Prison, where torture regularly takes place. And uh, Marina was tortured, and uh, she did manage to get away when she agreed to marry a guard, and and then she, uh, well, it's another story, but she got away from the guard, and she got away from Meron, and she lives in this country now. She's very happily uh, Canadian, also an international human rights uh, figure was honored by the European Parliament. So we'll talk more with Marina when we come back. I just was thinking about the fact that if that if Iran were destabilized to the point that they were like Syria, and then what would be left of the, of the region? There's so many factors here, but uh, the government of Iran has closed down much of social media, or a good part of it. So what are they looking at? How do they see it from their perspective? And what should Western governments do? We'll talk some more with Marina when we come back. It's The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Marina Namat is my guest, and we're talking about what's going on in Iran at the moment. Um, what are your friends in, uh, in, in Iran saying about how, how worried they are about the current situation um, Marina, on a personal level, because we've been we've heard that two two young men have uh, have died, and the uh, the protests, uh, the demonstrations have been have been significant. Are there personal? Do they have personal concerns for their safety? Uh, they do. Uh, many of my friends are now parents, and they have kids who are in their twenties, and they're worried about them. I mean, 
we, our generation, we ended up in prison we were in our, when we were in our teens and some of us in our 20s. So now we have children who are that age. Mm-hmm. And many of my friends, when they look at their kids, actually many of my friends, they got their children out of the country uh, a few years ago. But those who still have young, uh, well, you know, young adult children or t- kids who are in their teen years, or they have nieces and nephews, I mean, they're worried because yeah. they remember what happened to us. And uh, again, as I said to you, um, they don't want to see Iran fall into civil war. That is one of their main concerns. Yeah. They are fed up with this government. They hate this government. They want to see it gone in their lifetime. Uh, we were the generation of the revolution, and we want to see it gone. But um, they also know what the cost might be, and that is where fear uh, creeps in, and now, I do not blame Do you think that Western governments, clearly they must understand that as well, is there a role for Western governments to play? Uh, is it uh, at all this time to provide a lip service, or, or should they just back off and say nothing? You know what, back up and say nothing, no. Uh, I mean, direct uh, interference in any country's, other countries' affairs, I'm strongly against it. We have, if we even look at recent history, I mean, what happened in uh, Afghanistan, what happened in Iraq, what, what's happening in Syria right now. I mean, um, any kind of direct interference, it might work for the short run, but in long term, it usually has complications, implications that are usually huge and are usually very negative. So that I'm totally against. Any kind of direct, um, you know, putting put boots on the ground or military attacks or bombing this and bombing that, I'm usually against that because, again, as history has shown, it backfires. But to provide moral support, uh, to the people of Iran and to make sure that uh, populations in the West understand that the government of Iran and the people of Iran are two different things. Mm-hmm. That when you live under a dictatorship, you are the hostage of your government, except those who support the government. Right. But I mean, the government support in Iran has taken a nosedive. So the number of people who actually support the Iranian government um, is in fall, is in dropping. I mean, of course, we cannot take census, but uh, it seems to have been falling. All right, Marina, it's it's always a, an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today, and it's great to have you uh, in this country. Thank you so so much for having me. I'm a proud Canadian, and happy New Year. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, Marina Amat on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Seven words that'll scare any politician. Seven words that'll scare any talk show host. Candace Bergen, Michelle Rempel, and Senator Denise Batters are on the line. That'll scare any talk show host. There's been a lot of excitement since I revealed to you that we'd be ending 2017 with uh, the members of parliament and the senator from the Conservative Party of Canada. A lot of excitement because you have so many fans, so many supporters. In fact, I've heard from people who identify themselves fully and uh, with conviction as people from the left, and yet they are very much looking forward to hearing 
Um, you, Senator Batters, you, Michelle Rempel, Member of Parliament, and uh, Member of Parliament Candace Bergen. They, people are looking forward to what you have to say. So welcome, and uh, I can't think of a better way to kick 2017 in the behind. <laughs> Awesome. Hey. Looking forward to it. All right. Can we start? Let me start start it off with the issue that people are always talking about, and that's taxation. And uh, we have, starting tomorrow, there's going to be a carbon tax uh, starting, according to the Prime Minister. It has to begin in 2018. Taxation is, uh, is, is a major issue. Small businesses are going to be dealing with changes in taxes. Uh, we're going to have... Uh, Provincially, there'll be minimum wage hikes in uh, in Ontario starting tomorrow in Alberta in October. Just uh, when we, if you look at taxation as it is now, as it ought to be, um, and and what is what is likely to happen, Michelle, can I start with you to give us a, just an, your overview of taxation? Well, you know, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna give you a slightly different take, and I'll let Candace kind of go into some of the. Uh, more macro-level problems that are happening in Canada. But I think what we haven't talked about since the House rose is the importance of the fact that the Americans just put in place a significant tax reform piece that significantly lowered taxes in the U.S. while we're doing the exact opposite in Canada. So, you know, there, there are so many taxes that were increased in Canada this year, both at the federal and provincial levels. Uh, you know, carbon taxes... Um, CPP increases, EI increases, uh, the small business tax increases. Uh, we're doing all of these things to increase the tax burden on small businesses, on families, on single Canadians, on basically everything, while our major competitor to the south and our major trading partner is doing the exact opposite. So I'm worried, um, you know, we often talk about the, the impact that increased taxes are going to have on uh, you know, the, the spending power and the ability of families and single Canadians to make ends meet. I'm also worried about next year the fact that we're losing our competitive advantage on the continent, and that's a huge problem. Um, but I'm sure my colleagues will want to talk about the impact that it has on, on, on every single Canadian as well. Yeah, Candace, when it comes to the taxation, what you, you look at the fact that taxes are going to be changed and going to be going up, we, and, and new ones introduced. At the same time, we have a, a government that is running heavily uh, into a deficit territory, far more than they said that they would. And so our debt structure uh, federally is going to collide with with increased taxes. So your thoughts on that? Well, we, we have a government that has messed up pretty well everything that they've, they've set their hand to do. For sure, they have messed up the country's finances. Now, they were elected on a promise to reduce taxes for the middle class. Uh, the evidence has shown that the middle class taxes have actually gone up. They've, um, as you said, introduced and are going to be implementing a carbon tax. The carbon tax that will do nothing to reduce global emissions, uh, carbon tax that will only fill government coffers. And then you will recall in the summer when they uh, laid out their paper regarding small business tax increases, which was a complete disaster. And even though they kind of scaled it back, what has happened, Roy, it, is, it has created so much uncertainty among small businesses. And, uh, and, you know, Michelle talked about competitiveness. I think on a large scale when we're talking about energy investment, um, large investments in Canada, that will be going south. But I think when we look at small businesses, 
and whether people will start a small business in Canada or decide to operate us south of the border. I think on that front, we're going to see uh, a loss of, uh, of business as well. So, you know, it's, we, we, we just see a government that has a spending problem, and they're, you know, we haven't even started talking about how they're taxing vulnerable Canadians, people with diabetes, uh, our men and women in uniform, uh, people who actually are contributing a lot to Canada, and whether it's a $1,500 a year tax credit, uh, that means something to them. But this government has a spending problem, and they're, they're taxing Canadians uh, to death virtually. Uh, Senator Batters, you're from Saskatchewan, where there's been yeah. a bit of a, a duel. Uh, there was going to be a duel at high noon between Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, Premier Wall over the issue of a carbon tax. I don't know what's going to happen with the new uh, Premier oh, and, and the government. <laughs> <laughs> but but how does this carbon tax, when you, when you look at Saskatchewan, and then you, you broad-base it more out across Canada, how does this carbon tax, uh, what, does, what does it speak of to you? Well, in Saskatchewan, we have continued to fight against that, and I know that whoever the new Saskatchewan party leader is, who will become the next premier of Saskatchewan, they will continue on the fight of Premier Wall, because every single leadership contender in Saskatchewan um, for the SAS party is against the carbon tax strongly. So... Um, this is something that we've continued to fight against, and Minister McKenna and Prime Minister Trudeau have continued to avoid giving us the details of the carbon tax that they're planning to impose on us, which is completely unfair. I mean, we, I asked Minister McKenna about this in Senate question period 11 months ago, and then she didn't give me an answer as to what the details were going to be. She came back, I asked her again. Her only answer was hope springs eternal, and she was hoping that the next Saskatchewan party premier was going to be in favor of the carbon tax, which is just completely misguided. So now we hear talk that they're going to impose it on us um, in this com- coming September if we don't have it in place. Yet. Well, we're not going to have it in place because we're against it. This is not something that helps the environment. It's only something that helps the liberal coffers. And keep in mind that Australia in 2014, after they'd introduced and passed and had in place for a period of time, a carbon tax. In 2014, Australia said, no, it's hurting our economy, it's hurting our families, it's hurting our businesses, and they repealed the carbon tax. So there's an example there, uh, an economy that's quite similar to ours, um, of, the, of the carbon tax being a, an utter failure. I want to talk to you about ethics. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about ethics in government, ethics in parliament. We have a prime minister who four times now has violated ethics according to the ethics commissioner. We have a finance minister who also has been fined a, a massive sum of $200 for being an ethical violation of the, uh, of the expectations of Parliament, and just ethical realities, ethical expectations of all members of Canada's federal government. We'll come back with our guests, uh, Candace Bergen, the MP for Portage-Lisker, and Michelle Rempel, uh, Calgary Nose Hill, and Denise Matters, Senator from Saskatchewan. It's the Roy Green Show. And it's the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Just so you know, we've invited Liberal MPs and Senators and um, Cabinet Ministers and the Prime Minister to be on this program, and none of them have found it possible. Even we're in contact with the PMO, and they got back in touch with me. We exchanged emails. We had phone calls. And we're still waiting for Mr. Trudeau to show up on this program. Michelle Rempel is with us, Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary's Nose Hill Riding. Candice Bergen, MP for Portage-Lisker. 
in Manitoba and uh, Senator Denise Batters from Saskatchewan. A lot has been said about the issue of ethics. We have the Prime Minister being um, challenged directly by the uh, Commissioner in, uh, and four times he's violated the ethics rules. The Finance Minister has also had his issues. Is ethics, uh, is ethical behavior, or ethical standards a difficult accomplishment in Canada's parliament? Do you, do, you, do you walk around talking to each other, regardless of party affiliation, and saying, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? Or do people generally understand what the ethical expectations are? Senator, let me start with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really not that difficult. Um, they're pretty clear-cut, particularly in the case of Prime Minister Trudeau. I mean, this is the first sitting prime minister to have been found to have broken a federal law and broke it in four places, the Conflict of Interest Act. So um, it seems to me that him and his government, uh, they, they're suffering from an entitlement complex. Um, they can't relate to everyday Canadians, and instead they're dodging consequences and they seem to be allergic to accountability. Um, even he can't defend his own actions on this. Um, as we saw in the press conference, he kind of shorted out there for a bit and when he got a question from Rosemary Barton. Um, but time and again, we see him and uh, his ministers messing up, either with bad behavior or ethics violations, and on the minister's end of it, every single time, the prime minister refuses to fire them. Um, in the case of, you know, um, uh, Mr. Tutu, Mr. Sajjan, Mr. Hare, Mr. Morneau. And instead, it's the Prime Minister who ultimately bears the responsibility for all of this because he selected all of those people for cabinet positions and he chooses to keep them there. He could have put Bill Morneau into almost any other cabinet portfolio in order to avoid the types of potential conflicts of interest that he should have known were there and or did know were there with Minister Morneau's substantial financial holdings were widely reported before he was appointed as finance minister, but instead he chose to place him as finance minister and he chooses to keep him there now when there are substantial questions about both his ethical standards and uh, and how he's chosen to address that and also with his handling of the, of the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have massive deficits right now, which were two or three times what the Liberals even right. promised they would be. Right. Of course, we know budgets balance themselves. Um, Michelle Rempel, what about the issue of, of ethics for, for members of Canada's parliament? I know that there are guidelines or there are expectations issued that each MP receives. I've seen them. I have a copy of them actually in my office. Uh, was there any, uh, is, is there any gray area, any nebulous concerns about, or any concerns about nebulous areas as far as ethics are concerned, or is it just fundamentally understandable? This is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. I guess I would describe it as, certainly in the case of the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, just a lack of understanding on what the role of a public servant is, right? So, you know, in the case of the Prime Minister, um, he needs to understand that his salary is paid for by the taxpayers of Canada to work to bring good government. It is not paid to use his position to take free vacations to a private island that um, with, that's owned by somebody who lobbies or whose foundation lobbies the federal government for grant funding. That's I mean, not that's, rocket science, me, is it? No, and, and I guess, you know, there's, there's all this discussion now on, like, 
well, you know, what should we do with the Accountability Act and how is he going to be held accountable? I mean, we obviously, I think our party, our leader has done a really good job of pointing out just how ridiculous this is. But now it's really up to, it's certainly it's still up to us in Parliament, but it's, it's also up to every single Canadian, including those who voted for Mr. Trudeau, to say, you know what, this is not what I voted you to do. I, this is not why I pay your salary. And for me, this, this is something that every Canadian, this is now up to Canadians to decide whether or not they sanction this behaviour. Um, and, and that needs to be reflected in the next federal election. You know, okay. we're certainly going to keep putting attention on it, but I hope that Canadians remember this because to me it's a misunderstanding of what your role is. Your role isn't to take free vacations to private billionaire islands. It's just, um, it just seems really bizarre to me. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you all three of you to ask answer each question because then we won't get through the question number of questions that I have. So maybe one or two, I'll ask. I'll ask. Uh, I'll ask you to answer specific questions. If there's a question you really want to get at, and I don't ask you, by all means, uh, tell me that, and 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 we'll have you uh, answer it. Now, the two federal, two new federal party leaders in 2017, yeah, Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh. Uh, would you say that your leader has done an adequate, an admirable, or not so good job of getting out there and getting to know Canadians? I've been critical of Mr. Shear's um, almost invisibility. Uh, too frequently. I see him in question period, but other than that, not all that much. Uh, Candace, thoughts on that? Well, um, I'm, I'm the House leader, so I'm, uh, I'm in the House of Commons every day, and I know certainly Andrew Shear is doing, uh, as you said, uh, he's very visible in question period, which is one of the, really the only tools that we have to hold the government to account. And when you think about all the ethical lapses and scandals that have happened, they would only have been brought to light. Uh, they were only brought to light because we as opposition brought them to light. But I do know as well that Andrew Scheer has been out traveling across the country since he was uh, made leader at the end of May, meeting people, talking to people. Now, you know what, Roy, it might not be places where the, the, the media is going to be covering it. So not everybody might see it. You may not see it or hear about it, and, and fair enough. But I know, and I know our caucus knows, and the people who have been meeting him know that he's been getting out and traveling across the country. Now, and I, no, that's, sure. that's, that's fair sure. to say. Yeah. But he has a responsibility as well, if he's going to want to be prime minister, to be heard and seen by as many Canadians as he possibly can. And getting the message out, getting his message out, if he's going to small communities, that's fine. It's, he should. But if he's going somewhere where media aren't going to cover him, maybe there's some media bias. Well, we won't bother covering Shear today because <laughs> he's a runaway dog. Um, but I, I don't think that he's doing the job that he should be doing. Neither is Mr. Singh of getting out and, 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 and maximizing exposure, particularly at a time when Mr. Trudeau has some really serious problems. Well, I mean, I, I guess we can agree to disagree, although I will say that Andrew would be the first to tell you that he wants to meet more people and, and be more visible, and he's working very hard at that. But if we, we already know Andrew Scheer is not going to beat Justin Trudeau on the celebrity front. That is not going to be where he's trying to take the battleground. He's not going to go somewhere in hopes that there's going to be thousands of people turn out. What he wants to do is talk to people and tell them what the message that conservatives have you have the, the, the message that we have uh, and the policy and, and the different direction that we want to take the country. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you know what, Roy? Sometimes that means the church basement. 
when you're uh, when you're you know at the Legions or at the grocery store or some of these places, you may not get the coverage. But you got to start one step at a time. And I do know Andrew Shear works incredibly hard. He understands hard work. He also is incredibly personable. People uh, like what what they're seeing when they meet him. And so you know we just uh, we encourage him. We support him. And we just want to keep uh, seeing him get out there and do what he's doing well, to even a greater extent. Well, that's good. We have a minute, and we're going to take a break. Um, if I can just get 10 seconds quickly from uh, uh, from you, Michelle, and from you, Senator Batters, just on Andrew Scheer. Michelle, just 10 seconds. Well, you know, I, I think Andrew's come a long way in, in six very short months since the end of our leadership race. Uh, I, I don't think that the point that you're making is lost on him. I think he understands the, the critical necessity of getting out in mm-hmm. front of Canadians and also taking a, a very strong stance against the damaging policies that we're seeing from the Liberals, but also prevent, uh, presenting Canadians with a, a vision of something that they can vote for that's under our, yeah. our party's banner. So, you know, I, I think that he is working hard. This is going to be a big goal for him next year, and certainly he's got a lot of strong caucus members okay. uh, that are going to work on that goal. Okay, we're going to come back. Uh, I have to take a break. We'll come back and we'll continue with our hour with Michelle Rempel, Candace Bergen, both Conservative members of Parliament, Denise Batters, Conservative Senator, right after this. Standing up for the little guy for the greater good. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. not have occurred to you with all due respect you were going to take a free holiday from someone you consider a friend how could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay the fact is we work uh, the uh, sorry let me just try to reorder reorder the thoughts we um, worked with uh, the the uh, uh, lobby Conflict of Interest Commissioner. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of tough. It's kind of, it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough when you're in the corner and you're not facing a pudgy old senator who can't fight back. You're facing yourself. That was awful. The CBC interviewing the Prime Minister. I thought it was pretty good questioning, actually. We have with us, and it's uh, an honor to have them uh, on the program, ending 2017, heading into 2018 on the Chorus Radio Network. Across this country of ours, Michelle Rempel, who's a Conservative Member of Parliament for Nose Hill Riding in Calgary, Candace Bergen, Portage Lisker in Manitoba, and Denise Batters, Senator from Saskatchewan. Uh, let me go on to um, something else here, and that's immigration and our borders. What needs to be said about the immigration issue and I, I know, Michelle, you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago where you were, you, you had confronted the immigration minister on the FGM issue and the new Canadian guide for newcomers to Canada. What needs to be said about the immigration issue and the borders, and particularly when the prime minister comes up, makes up his own, his own definition of people who are breaking the law entering Canada, calling them irregular crossings. So I'll start with you, Michelle, on this issue of immigration. It's very simple. Canada, Canada's immigration system needs to function under two very simple points. The first is people coming into Canada must do it through a planned and orderly and legal system. And then we also have to make sure that people that are coming to Canada 
are supported and expected to integrate into the fabric of Canada's economy and into our, our, our social system. So what does that mean and where has the government been failing? So on the first component, the illegal border crossing issue, I think is one of the biggest public policy fails in Canada in, in, in recent Canadian history. When you think about it, there were nearly 40,000 people who illegally crossed the border into Canada and had benefits such as health care and work permits expedited when there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world that want to come to this country but want to do it by playing by the rules. And it's not fair. It's not fair and it, I think, just completely undermines the integrity of our system. The second component with regard to integration is I look at the experience that some of our recent refugees have had in the country over the last year and a half and I think that that is a big failure. So the government spent a lot of effort uh, taking photo ops with refugees when they came into the country, but now the rubber's really hitting the road. Um, these are people who have spent the majority of their life in a, in a war zone. How is the, what is the government doing to ensure that they can speak English or French, that they become employed over the long term? Um, that, you know, we're talking about, uh, you, you know, I even think about some of these children that are going into schools um, and have special needs because of their, you know, their trauma. These are all things that we have to talk about. The, the reality is, is the government brought 25,000 plus people here as government-assisted refugees and had no plan in place to deal with that. And at the same time, you know, they, they turned a blind eye to genocide survivors such as uh, the Yazidis. You and I have spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, it, it's just such a complete failure. And the government expects Canadians to let this debate disintegrate down into, you know, uh, you know, just shut the, let the, completely shut the doors. Uh, you know, let's, you know, they want to put different labels on, on, on that debate. Whereas I think a lot of Canadians are saying, we support immigration, but we expect you to do it right. And we're not going to let you off the hook uh, for, for just a complete failure. Mm. The government needs to close the loophole in the safe third country agreement that allows this activity to happen for people to cross the border and still claim asylum in Canada, uh, cross the border illegally. Um, they need to be putting a lot more thought into how many people are coming to the country with regard to how that matches our economic needs and the integration support that's required therein. And they need to make sure that our screening processes and that our support programs uh, are functioning, and we know that they're not yeah. uh, to the level that they need to be. So it's yeah. a big debate, one that they have to look at in the new year. All right, Candace, let me uh, steer you toward the issue of, uh, of refugees coming into Canada. And, I, and I'm doing this because earlier today and yesterday I saw stories that in Germany, uh, for New Year's Eve in Berlin, there's an area that's being put aside where the major New, New Year's celebrations are taking place. An area has been set aside for women to go to where they can feel safe if they find themselves in a situation where they might be being uh, approached in a way that is totally inappropriate and that they don't want to have happen. And it's, a, and it's a reflection on what happened in, uh, in, in Cologne, I think it was, uh, in 2016, and it's been talked about a great deal, that with Angela Merkel bringing more than a million or allowing more than a million migrants into, into Germany, it has changed the dynamic of the country, and it's created situations uh, such as the one at the, uh, at the train station in, in Cologne, and, and now they have the safe area planned for Berlin. Is there anything from that experience in Germany that's being reported on 
that is important to the issue of refugees coming to Canada. And we remember the prime minister tweeted out that, you know, if if you're facing religious or other, um, uh, I forget the word that he used, but um, if you're being unfairly treated, then Canada will welcome, welcome you. So can you speak to that, please? Well, it was uh, the Prime Minister's irresponsible tweet that really started the whole influx of illegal migrants. And uh, many of them actually are, are coming at borders uh, close to my, and in my riding of Portage Lisgar. So I'm, uh, I'm in Manitoba, and I have Emerson very close to where I live, as well as Gretna. Um, I think there are two issues, Roy, that you're talking about. First of all is uh, Syrian refugees. And I know that Canadians uh, right across the country um, wanted to be able to support and help people who were fleeing for their very lives. And they wanted to be, help, be able to help them in Canada. Um, we did. Michelle was, uh, was working very hard asking some very important and serious questions of the government in terms of what they were doing to, as Michelle talked about, help these people when they get to Canada, but also making sure that they are screened properly. Uh, we never got answers. And then in the midst of that, was when the Prime Minister sent out this tweet, uh, Canada welcomes everyone, and that's when the illegal migrant uh, issue started. Um, you know, what's interesting, when you look at the immigration system over the last 20, 30 years under previous Liberal governments and Conservative governments, it's been fairly, fairly consistent. There may have been some tweaks, some differences in different uh, political parties that were in government. Until now, Justin Trudeau has made such a mess of this entire file and this whole issue. And, and I agree with, with Michelle. This is a huge issue that we don't even know the ramifications. And people in Canada want to help. They want to believe the best of, uh, of those who are coming here. They want to see them contribute and be part of, of our accounts and our communities. But because Trudeau is dismissing really important questions, he actually you know, calls people names. If, if you ask a question, Trudeau just says, oh, you probably are racist and you're not uh, asking with the right motive. That's really damaging. That's divisive. And so unless the government, in this case Trudeau, will answer these questions and stop with some of this irresponsible uh, stuff that just gives him more social media and more photos, this is only a problem that's going to grow and, and we really don't know uh, where it might end. You know, Mr. Trudeau also in 2015 said, and we've played his clip many times, where he said in Winnipeg that, as, and he wanted, he wanted it understood that it was his initiative that any convicted terrorist who's a dual citizen in, in this country, any convicted terrorist would not lose his or her Canadian citizenship as legislation passed by the Stephen Harper government uh, was allowing to be done and was in fact done with one of the leaders of the Toronto 18. He said convicted terrorists would not lose their Canadian citizenship because, and I'm not sure that's when he said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, but that was not going to happen. And they passed Bill C-6, which essentially overturned C-24. And uh, and Mr., uh, I forget his name, uh, got his, was his, had his Canadian citizenship returned in uh, in July of this year. So there's a lot to be dealt with on the issue of refugees. When we come back, I still also want to try to get in some uh, something about uh, Omar Khadr and pipelines, huge issue for the economy of this country, but there's something that's planned for the Senate, at least the Prime Minister wants it for the Senate, a lot said about the Senate in this country, and we'll ask Senator Batters about that when you return. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
In some parts of the world, it's already 2018. We're counting down and helping us do that with the final program, the final hour, the final program for 2017 uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We are joined by three members of the Conservative Party, Michelle Rempel, uh, the uh, MP for Nose Hill in Calgary, Portage Lisker MP in Manitoba, Candace Bergen, and Denise Batters, Saskatchewan Senator, Senator Batters, when uh, a lot has been said about the Senate, the viability of the Senate, the importance of the Senate, the lack of importance of the Senate, and on and on and on it goes. Now, Mr. Trudeau decided he didn't want any particular uh, liberal caucus in the Senate, but he has one. We know that. But from what I understand, there he's also looking at changes to the way the Senate operates, and, uh, and he's carrying on with this idea about no official opposition. What's going on? Yeah, well, the Trudeau government, alarmingly, their desired goal is to actually eliminate opposition in the Senate. Earlier this year, the Trudeau government brought forward a quote-unquote discussion paper to stifle debate and opposition in the House of Commons, and my excellent colleagues there fought that off. But similar efforts continue to be used by the Trudeau government in the Senate, and they're not backing down on those yet. Um, I mean, Justin Trudeau previously stated that he admires China for their basic dictatorship, and then when he was recently asked in China what country he'd admired, he replied Britain, but he replied that because of their programming of legislation. Well, if Justin Trudeau wants to push his legislation through, he should have to pay a political consequence for that political choice. Um, And he also, he kicked his liberal senators out of caucus for political reasons, to avoid consequences dealing with our Auditor General situation. So I don't think we should completely reshape our parliamentary system in the Senate, a system that's functioned quite well for 150 years, all to satisfy the political whims of Justin Trudeau. What we have right now in the Senate, we have this new independent Senate, they like to call it. Well, this is smoke and mirrors. Independents are not more independent than partisan senators. The average voting percentage with the Trudeau government of an independent senator is 95%. Um, What we have right now is we have basically a liberal government status quo system where we're having a liberal prime minister appoint people who are inclined to vote with the liberals in very large numbers. We have a confusing situation, and we also have an expensive situation. We Mm -hmm. used to have two leadership groups. Now we have four. Well, uh, talk about countries the prime minister admires. I thought it was Cuba, but I could be wrong. Yes, that too. (laughs) On, On the issue of, and this is one where our callers have said and vowed they would not forget, and they would not forget in 2019. And that was the time Mr. Trudeau cut the check for $10.5 million to Omar Khadr, who's a self-confessed terrorist and murderer, self-confessed. And he argues, Trudeau argues, well, he's saving Canadians money. He's angry that he had to do this, but if it had run its course in, in court, it would have cost $30, $40 million. He has no idea what he's talking about because who knows what it would have cost? Maybe nothing. Uh, you, you can't you can't presage what's going to happen in in a court of law, but Canadians are angry and upset with that. Now, Mr. Trudeau has said that he thinks that returning ISIS terrorists who joined ISIS with the objective of participating in the kind of terrible, horrific mayhem that we've seen, he thinks they could be extraordinarily positive voices in this country. So we spoke about that yesterday, and there's a great deal of anger from our callers across Canada. Um, let me go back to you, Michelle, on on this one. I, I'll just open the door. Go ahead. 
Uh, I, I guess I'll touch on the issue of um, terrorists who have fought with ISIS, uh, who have an association with Canada, who's tra- who've traveled to fight with ISIS and then have come back to Canada. Um, you know, I've sat in rooms with women who were held captive by ISIS and sold on their sex slave markets by numerous men, uh, raped dozens of times a day by different men uh, in the name of, you know, ISIS's terrorist death cult, disgusting, um, inhuman mantra. And all I can think about is when Justin Trudeau gets up and talks about uh, rehabilitation as the key priority or talks about uh, touts a program where the government has spent $600,000 of taxpayer money uh, for a foundation that is focusing on writing poetry uh, regarding ISIS. Um, these are the sort of things that make Canadians lose faith in the ability to gain justice for people who have uh, seen atrocities committed to them. The reality is, is that ISIS committed genocide. And, you know, when the prime minister or any of his ministers or any liberal stands up and says, oh, never again, and then says, well, hold on a second, our first priority isn't bringing these criminals to justice or suggesting that somehow it's a split objective. Uh, I just, you know, sending the wrong message isn't the right thing to say, because I think about what I would be feeling if I was one of these women. And the reality is, is that I'm an advocate for these women. And um, it makes me want to vomit in my mouth. Uh, It infuriates me. I, um, I, I actually, it's difficult to sort of maintain... I'm just so angry. Okay, um, so let me. It's just so let, let, me, let me do this. It's so fundamentally wrong. It is. The first priority is that these people should be brought to justice. These oh. terrorists, these criminals, these murderers, these death cultists need to be brought to justice, and Canada needs to be at the for, forefront of this internationally, not just at home, but on international criminal court convictions as yeah. well. Yeah, and I'm going to stay with you, Michelle, because the next question has to do with energy, has to do with pipelines, has to do with using our natural resources in this country to the benefit of people in Canada. That is using our resources for Canadians and then also exporting them so that we have income coming in, which seems to escape some people. Uh, as an Albertan, as an Alberta member of Parliament, please uh, please answer that one for us. Well, uh, the only thing I can give Justin Trudeau credit for is that he was smart, smarter than his father and that he didn't label it nas- the National Energy Program. Um, every single thing that Justin Trudeau has done since coming to office has been to systemically dismantle any prospect of the energy sector being viable in Canada, from changes to the regulatory review process for major resource projects, making that political. Uh, you know, his cabinet overturned the uh, arm's length decision made by the NEB on the gateway pipeline uh, to the carbon tax, to um, the tanker ban, to, uh, you know, all of these different regulations, regulatory uncertainty, the small business tax changes. Um, he has done everything that he possibly can to say, uh, you know, the energy sector should not operate in Canada. Uh, you know, every, even though, even calling, you know, like dirty jobs, right? You know, it's going to be very interesting in 2018 as equalization payments um, become a topic of discussion again. There, I, I think the renegotiation process happens next year. 
Uh, all of a sudden, Ontario, that is the biggest uh, subnational debt in the country, that has relied upon the uh, transfer payments from the development of natural resources, and by the way, in some of the most environmentally responsible conditions in the world, all of a sudden we're going to have to start having a conversation about um, what Justin Trudeau thinks the economy is going to actually do okay. uh, after all of this, all of these jobs are relocated to the U.S. I just think that it's so short-sighted, it's ridiculous, it ignores the fact that Canada has a sustainable development agenda, and uh, he's completely ruined my province, and um, I'll continue to hold him to account for that. It's disgusting, and... uh, yeah, he Justin Trudeau has no friends here. Okay, I have sure. to I have to jump in because this time the clock got us and the year got us. So can't fight that. I thank you all three for joining us for the last hour of the program of 2017. Look forward to 2018, and uh, always look forward to a better year than the last one. And I hope that we can count on on you all coming back and joining us on the program. Thanks for having us. Love to do Thanks, that. Thanks okay. so much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, you and all your listeners. Thank you, Senator. Senator Denise Batters, members of Parliament, Michelle Rempel and Candace Bergen on The Roy Green Show. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.